it's interesting how we've jumped forward um, over the past couple of years. A lot of churches have been drugged kind of unwillingly into being online and things like that. But uh, the rise of all of our internet communication, we can't really say it's a new thing anymore because it's been around for a while, but uh, it's brought a lot of good things with it. And it's also brought some struggles with it. And the way we communicate, how much we communicate, how we view different forms of communication has changed a lot. And we're constantly learning how to work with that and how to deal with that. I remember it wasn't that long ago, for instance, that a text message was a very informal way of communication. You didn't really do business with that or important things. But these days, I will will work through text message for things as important as funeral arrangements and, and weddings and things like that. So the way we communicate and how we view different forms of communication has changed. And one now, right now, one of the big things happening in the world on a list of big things is that we're trying to figure out what to say, how to say it, when to say it, and what's okay to say. And by that, I'm really kind of talking about a freedom of speech and freedom of expression and how that's viewed online. And, you know, when something is said online, the potential, there's so much for potential for so many people to see it. Um, and in Australia, we have the right to freedom of thought, freedom of opinion, but the Australian Constitution doesn't necessarily guarantee explicitly protection for freedom of speech and freedom of uh, expression. You can think whatever you want, but you can't necessarily say what you want without some consequence. However, at the same time, uh, Australia is party to um, some international human rights treaties and the right to freedom of opinion and expression um, is contained in those, those uh, treaties. But personally, my opinion is probably, and I'm a little bit biased because a lot of what I do is speaking and being able to free speak freely about biblical topics and things like that. Um, some would agree with my thinking on this and others wouldn't, and I, I would understand that. But my personal opinion on being able to speak freely is that I see very little room for any limitations on that. Um, again, this is me personally speaking, but I see very little, little room for limitation on what someone can say, regardless of what they're saying, whether I like it or dislike it, how it makes me feel is, is mostly irrelevant. Now, I'm, I'm realistic about it. I realize there's got to be some kind of boundary somewhere. But, you know, if everyone doesn't have the right to do that, then no one does. Now, if we could come together using common sense and speak to each other in ways that say, well, maybe I could grow a little thicker skin, maybe you could be a little more wise in the way you present things and we might be able to work things out. But if you've ever been on an internet forum or social media, you know, that's generally not how things go. And our service this morning, for instance, because it's being live streamed um, and recorded, has the potential to reach limitless people, really has that potential. I mean, the reality is, is that we have a few people online and it's probably not going to go much further than that. But the potential is there for literally the whole world to hear it. And whenever we speak online, whenever we post things online, that's what we're dealing with now. And I've, I've had a few things like that sneak up on me in the past where I've said things and I've actually commented something online and it's ended up literally in national news. And I was like, whoa, look at that. It wasn't anything bad. It just happened to be something that I'd commented on some post and 
uh, it ended up there. It was, it was kind of a, a, a reality check for me. But there's a lot of responsibility in that, in speaking out, speaking to the world. And today we're talking about a topic that needs to be navigated carefully and wisely. And today we're finding defining the word sin. Um, what is it? What does it do? And how do I deal with it? I was going to add to that, how do I talk about it? But instead I thought, well, I'll just talk about it. And part of what prompted that, or well, maybe not prompted it, but has made me think about these things, there's a couple of news articles I read recently. And they were both from entertainment news sources. So, I mean, they were presented specifically and intentionally in a way to be inflammatory and stir people up and things like that. But one of the articles I read was about a, a so-called pastor who had gotten himself into trouble for speaking out in a way that was considered hate speech. And that's a sticky topic because, you know, how do you define that? That, that can be very situation-specific. And this pastor specific, specifically was taking some passages from the book of uh, Leviticus about homosexuality and how it was handled under the Israelite law and making that application today, saying that's how it should be handled. And first off, that's not true. He was speaking a lie. And that's not how we are instructed to handle that today. And last week we talked about the law, the Old Testament law, and how Jesus fulfilled that law. We have our own civil law that we live by, and the religious law that the Israelites lived by has been fulfilled in the sacrifice of Jesus. And the moral law makes us aware of our need for a Savior, like the Ten Commandments. The moral law shows us what God says is sin. What is it? What does it do? And how do I deal with it in my life? And this is as challenging a question today as it's ever been because there's a lot of things that are considered okay, and then we've got the hate speech thing going on in the world now and all of the different things going on. So it's, it's challenging to talk about it. And to answer those questions, you know, what is it? How do I deal with it? What does it do? We're going to be looking at uh, a, a pretty well-known story, the story of David and Bathsheba. And we find that in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and the first part of chapter 12. And we're not going to read that all today because it's so long, but I'm going to read some selected verses and kind of fill in the blanks as we go. But I would encourage you to go back today, this afternoon, and read all of that. Second uh, Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 through 27, and then chapter 12, verses 1 through 10. And also, after you read those, go and read the 51st Psalm, because that's the Psalm that David wrote after the events of uh, 2 Samuel 11 and 12. And I'm going to read, read some verses here. We're going to start with verses 1 through 6 in 2 Samuel chapter 11, and then we're going to jump down, we'll read a few, and then we'll jump over to chapter 12 and read a few. And like I said, we'll fill in the blanks as we go. But 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 says this. It says, In the spring of the year, the time when the kings go out to battle, King David sent out Joab and his officers, all of Israel with him. They brought to ruin the Ammonites and besieged Rabah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, when David arose from his bed and was walking on the roof of the king's house, from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. 
So David sent someone to inquire about the woman, and it was asked, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers, and he took her, she came to him, and he lay with her. When she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. The woman conceived. She sent a message and reported to David, I am pregnant. Then David sent an order to Joab, send Uriah the Hittite to me. So Joab sent Uriah to David. And then we'll skip down to verse 14. Uriah had come back. David tried to get him to go visit his wife, but Uriah wouldn't do that while the rest of Israel was out uh, in battle. In verse 14, it says, That morning David wrote a message to Joab and sent it by way of Uriah. He wrote in the message, Send Uriah to the front of the line where the fighting is heaviest, then withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. When the men of the city came out, they fought with Joab. Some people among those who served David fell. Uriah the Hittite died among them. And then over to chapter 12, verses 1 through 7, it says, The Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said, There were two men in a certain city. One was wealthy, but the other was poor. The wealthy man had a very large flock and herd, but the poor man had nothing except a single small ewe lamb that he had acquired. He nourished it and raised it together with himself and his sons. From his crumbs it would eat, from his cup it would drink, and in his arms it would lie. It was like a daughter to him. There came a visitor to the wealthy man, but he was unwilling to take from his own flock or herd to prepare a meal for the wanderer who had come to him. Instead, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared food for the wanderer who had come to him. David became very angry because of this man. He said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Then Nathan told David, You are this man. At the beginning of chapter 11, David had sent out his army to go to war, but for whatever reason, he had remained behind. And I've heard it said that, you know, if David had gone with his army and been busy with them, what happens in these passages wouldn't have came to pass. And, you know, that's, that's probably true. Being idle can likely lead to more sin. Um, I know when I was younger and I was bored, I tended to get in more trouble than when I was busy. That's just kind of a reality. But at the same time, being busy isn't a cure for sin. But David was on the roof of his house one night, and he goes for a walk, and he sees Bathsheba taking a bath. And the Bible says that she was very beautiful. He found her very attractive. And so he sent someone to inquire about her. And then he sent messengers to go get her and bring him to him. And we know that in doing so, at this point, David committed a sin. He had sexual relations with another man's wife. And from this passage, I think we can put together a definition of sin that's going to help us better understand it, help us view it in the way God intends us to, and it's going to help us deal with it more effectively in our own lives because it's something we all struggle with. And before we do that, let's have a word of prayer and just ask God to, to open us up to our time together and hear what he has for us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we again come to you in prayer. We're grateful for your love, for your mercy, for your grace. And as we, we look at David and Bathsheba and we define sin and we look at what it is and, and what it does and what we can do about it in our own lives, Father, I pray that you would just help us work through these things in such a way that we would 
uh, be able to better deal with sin that we might be struggling with and get that out of our lives so it's, it doesn't get in the way of the good things that you have for us so that we would be better servants of you, represent you well, all of those things. And Father, we're just thankful for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So sin is a term. It's like an archery term. It means to miss the mark. It's like you're aiming at a target, but you miss the target. The target being what God defines as good, what God defines as right, what God defines as righteous. What God defines as the right thing to do. And as human beings, you know, sometimes we have a tendency to add and subtract to those things. Sometimes we struggle with it. Um, one definition of sin that I read says this. It says, in a religious context, sin is a transgression against divine law. Each culture has its own interpretation of what it means to commit a sin. While sins are generally considered actions, any word or act considered immoral, selfish, shameful, harmful, or alienating might be termed sinful. Now that definition says each culture has its own interpretation, which is probably true, but that's not only true for cultures, that's true for individuals within a culture as well. So if everyone has their own definition of sin, who is right? Who decides who is right? And that's why we need a transcendent standard of what is sin. And as Christians, we believe God has given us that in the Bible. It's the standard that's higher than all of us because we're not omniscient, we're not omnipotent, we're, we're flawed, uh, we do things wrong, and we need a standard that is more than just what we think in the moment. And God gives us that, and that's what we need. And I think a definition of sin that will, that will help to lead us in the right direction is this, and this isn't original with me, but here it is. Sin is a good God-given desire exercised outside of God's intended context. Sin is a good God-given desire that is exercised outside of God's intended context. And I've thought about that a lot, and I've found that to be consistently true. You know, someone might say, well, that's not completely true, but I've found that to be consistently true. In our passage today, David exercises a good God-given desire outside of God's intended context. A desire to express sexuality is a good God-given desire when it's expressed inside of the context in which God intends it to be expressed. It becomes sin when it's expressed outside of that context. You know, a, a desire for justice is a good God-given desire until it's exercised as revenge or murder. Then it becomes sinful. And the way we react to and the way we exercise desires that we feel matters. They matter a lot. How we exercise those, how we react to those things matters. And that's going to help us better understand our own sin. And it also helps us better understand the sin of others, the sin that we see out in the world, in the world around us. Because, frankly, Christians don't have the best reputation for handling what's going on in the world well. And sometimes we mean well, but often more damage is done than good. And 
we have a good God-given desire to see the world become a better place. We have a good God-given desire to see you know, God's kingdom grow. And when we see sinful things happening, it's helpful to remember that people are exercising a good God-given desire outside of God's intended context. Just like we often do ourselves. And when we view people in that way, it helps us lead us down the path of recognizing, realizing, thinking about the fact that people are created in God's image. Everyone we bump into, everyone we see, the people that might stress us out in the world by what they're doing or how they act, they're made in God's image. And they're exercising a good God-given desire, but it's not in the context that God intends it to be exercised. But they are made in the image of God. And he loves them. He loves you, and he loves me, and he loves anyone who's listening this morning. So what happens, <laughs> excuse me, when we exercise a good God-given desire outside of God's intended context? What happens? What does sin do? What does it cause to happen? As you read through our, our passage today, and you see that when David sinned, it set in motion a chain of events that brought death and destruction, brought nothing but problems and trouble, death, just all kinds of bad things. David exercises his desire in the way that God didn't intend him to, and it put him in a place that was very difficult, to say the least. Now, under the Old Testament law, the penalty for adultery is death. It's death. Now, David's the king, so, you know, I don't know if he would have been drug out and stoned. But nonetheless, that's the penalty for adultery under the Old Testament law. David's in a very difficult place. Uh, it's, well, and that was the penalty for breaking the Sabbath, preaching or practicing a different religion. The penalty for being a rebellious son under the Old Testament law was death. Um, and I wonder about that. The pastor I mentioned earlier who was saying this is how we should handle homosexuality. I wonder if when someone in his congregation struggles with marital fidelity if he thinks they should stone them as well, or if there's a rebellious child in his congregation, if they should stone them as well. Uh, it would be hypocritical to think otherwise, but anyway. Because those kinds of things happen. Even in small churches, they happen. And um, we need to know how to deal with sin, and we need to know what it does. And in the Old Testament law, we learn that sin is serious. God takes it very seriously, and the consequences of sin are severe. Not just the temporal consequence, because we're going to have those as well, but the eternal spiritual consequence of spiritual death. And it, you know, eternally knowing God, not as Savior, but as righteous judge. And David's initial reaction, after he had sinned with Bathsheba, was to try to hide it and cover it up. And he wanted Joab to lead some men up close to the wall of the city that was they were had were uh, besieging, putting under siege, however you say that. And then he's like, okay, get him up close to the wall, and then everybody back away and let him be killed. Let him be killed. And that's what happened. They backed away. He was killed. Uriah was dead. But we also read that there were other people killed because of that as well. It's, when you look in there, you see it wasn't only Uriah who was killed, but there was other men killed as well. So you can imagine the pain and the sorrow caused for all those families. You know, not only Uriah's life, wife, but all those other families as well. And when a good God-given desire 
is exercised within God's context, families are strengthened. They're not hurt. Uh, churches are strengthened and they grow. They're not hurt. Communities follow along with that. But when that desire is exercised outside of God's intended context, bad things happen. All those things are weakened and it's destroyed and it brings death and destruction. And that's what we see happening in the story of David and Bathsheba. And ultimately, it's sin that cuts us off from God, breaks fellowship with God. So what do we do about it? How do we handle it? Because it causes death, destruction, problems. Nothing good comes of it. So how do we deal with it in our own life? What do we do about it? Well, you're the only person you have control over. So let's talk about you. I'm the only person I have control over. Let's talk about me. How do I deal with sin in my life? What do I do about it? When we look at the story of David and Bathsheba and the series of events that follow, if you could be there when David walks out on this roof, you know, nor the hindsight's always 20-20, but knowing what David's about to do and get himself into and the consequences that are going to come along with that, what might you say to David? Well, you'd probably say, don't do it. Don't do that, David. There's always the opportunity to say, don't do it. Avoid it in the first place. And that's really the best way to deal with sin is to avoid it in the first place. And the sooner you do that, the easier it is and the better off you will be. Don't do it. Avoid it in the first place, which is almost an oversimplification, but it's still true. It's still effective and it's still the best option. Just don't do it in the first place. And the more we practice that, the better we get at it. And there are some sins that we're good at avoiding. There are sins in the world that, that you don't do. You know, you might be someone who's like, I would never go into a store and shoplift. I don't steal things. That's just not what I do. You're good at avoiding that. There's things that we're good at avoiding, that we're well-practiced at, that are not even in consideration, sins that we're just not going to commit. And it's easy to avoid that sin. But there's also things that we struggle with, that we wrestle with, that are difficult for us to avoid. And I don't know what that is for you, but you know what that is for you. And when you look at how things progressed with David, you know, before he sinned, before he actually did that, he stopped and he thought about it. He went out on the roof, he was looking around, and he stopped and he thought about it. There's actually a process he went through. He went on to inquire about Bathsheba, and then after that he, he sent for her, and went through these steps before actually exercising his desire outside of the context God intended him to exercise it. So sin, it's not just a mistake. It's not like you trip and fall and it's an accident. It's, sin's not like a misspelled word. It's not a mistake. Uh, it's not an accident. And when you look at places in the Bible where people committed sin, you know, the original sin in the garden, it's, it's never an accident. It's not a mistake. It's reasoned out. It's thought through. Now, that may not always be the case, but Adam and Eve, they took the time to reason it out. They took this fruit that God said don't eat, and they said, well, it looks like it's good for wisdom. They thought about it, and then they ate it. David went through a process before he took action leading to the sin he committed. And sin is almost always a conscious decision. It's a process, something we go through. There's always a time, if you really are honest about it and think about it, there's always a point where you make a decision. We decide to do it. It's not an accident. It's not a mistake. It's a decision. And there's a decision made, steps taken. So one thing we can do about sin in our own life is decide not to sin. 
We can avoid it, and we can be aware of the decision when the decision comes. David commits sin with Bathsheba. And the next thing he does wrong is he tries to fix it himself. He tries to fix it. You know, he's like, well, I'll get Uriah killed, or I'll try. Well, first thing he does, actually, is he has Uriah come back, and he tries to get him to go home and be with his wife. So it doesn't look like this kid is his, but Uriah won't do that. He goes back to the, to the battle with the army, and then he's like, well, okay. And he actually sends a note with Uriah to Joab to have him back away from Joab in battle so he's killed. And, you know, it's, it's interesting to think Uriah is carrying that note. But he's such a loyal guy, he never actually opens and looks at it. But David tries to cover it up. He tries to fix it. He tries to do things himself. And it only leads to more sin. And it only leads to making things worse. It only leads to more lies. And that's what happened with David. We see that in dramas and movies and television shows. Someone does something wrong, and they try to fix it. They try to cover it up. They try to make things work out. And they only make things worse. Like I said, go read all of this later today. But at at any time during that process, David could have stopped, and he would have been better off than he ended up being. Stop and repent. Stop and repent. Admit that you're sinful. Ask God for forgiveness and turn away from the sin. The earlier you do that, the better. And David could have done that at any time. And so could we. Repent. The sooner the better. Eventually, that's what David does, but it takes him a while. And that's where Psalm 51 comes in. David wrote that after a series of events. And look what he says in the first few verses. Verses 1 through 3, he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the abundance of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. That's repentance. David is repenting. He's actually putting it in writing. And here's another way of of dealing with sin, and maybe this will be helpful. Um, We often try to fight sin with sheer willpower. We talked about that in our our program we did through the month of January. We talked about the power of habit and how powerful habits are and how habit will beat up on willpower every time. Willpower is a pretty ineffective way to deal with sin, at least long term. It can be helpful in the moment, exercise willpower, get away from it, but it's not very sustainable, and it's difficult to keep up. And when you're confronted with sin, think about this. Because like I say, it's a decision. We, we know we're going to do it. When you're confronted with it, and you're teetering on the edge and struggling, think about this. What, what is a good desire that God has given me that I'm about to exercise outside of the context in which he intends me to exercise it. You know, where does God want me to exercise this this desire that I'm struggling with in the sin? Where's the proper place for this? Something to think about. And in the case of David and Bathsheba, and I I hope I'm not sawing off the limb I'm, I'm sitting on here, but David wanders out on the roof and he sees Bathsheba and she's beautiful. And he could have said, oops, just turned around and walked away and left it at that. But he didn't. He didn't. He went through with it. Now, David has his own wife. Matter of fact, he has at least eight wives. The Bible mentions the names of eight of his wives. He probably had more than that. Now, there's a lot involved with that. 
the time period, the culture, a lot of different things, but, but set all of the, the, the multiple wives thought aside for a moment. And we can get to that another day. But in that moment of decision and series of events, David could have said, I've got my own wife. And gone there instead of Uriah's wife. He could have exercised that desire within God's intended context. And when the prophet Nathan comes to David with his sin and confronts him with it, he tells a story. And he talks about a rich man and a poor man. And the rich man has a very large flock and a herd. And the poor man has nothing except a small ewe lamb. And the poor man loves his lamb very much. And the lamb would drink from his cup. It would eat, eat crumbs from his table. It would lie in his arms. The lamb was like part of his family. And the rich man, who had a very large flock, had uh, a visitor come, and he was unwilling to take an animal from his own flock. So he took the poor man's lamb and slaughtered that to give his visitor a meal. And when David hears that, he becomes very angry. He's very angry, very upset about it. And he says, whoever did this needs to return to the poor man fourfold, four times what he took. And Nathan says to David, you are that man. You're the one who did that. This story is about you. And he goes on to tell David that everything he is, everything he has, is because of what God has given him. And that's more than enough. Matter of fact, God says, if, if that wasn't enough, he would have given you much more. And he asks, why have you despised the Lord and done evil in his sight? You have everything you need. You have everything you need to be satisfied. Why have you despised the Lord and done evil in his sight? Now you and your household, because of this, are going to suffer consequences from that. And therein lies our final way today of, of avoiding sin. Recognize that whatever God has given you, whatever he's given me, whatever area of life it might be, is enough. And be satisfied with it. It's enough. Be satisfied with it. The reality is, is that it's more than enough. He's given us more than we need. Sin is exercising that good God-given desire outside of God's intended context. It's being dissatisfied with what we have, with what God's given us, saying, God, you're not enough. You haven't given me enough. I want to go outside of what you have given me, what you have for me. And that involves seeking something, usually, that God does not intend for us to have. And the reason for that is usually good. It's not good for us. It's usually destructive. And we all do that. The Bible's very clear about it. We all sin. We all fall short. We all miss the mark, miss the target God set. And we all exercise, way, exercise desires in ways that God doesn't intend. And we even often exercise our desire to be right with God in the wrong context. We try to make ourselves right with him. We work hard at it. We try to do things we feel and think God is going to accept me or reject me based on what I do. And then like David, we sin. And because of that mindset, we, we struggle, we hide it, we fix it. We continually wrestle and struggle with it. And, and when what we need to do is we need to stop and repent and recognize that God has given us enough, that God is enough, 
We need to exercise our desire to be right with God by putting our faith and our trust in Jesus and placing it there and, and, and confessing that sin. It's, it's interesting when, when things are brought out in the light and we, we confess, it's, it's amazing how much power those things lose. And that's often the case when we confess God and we get our knees. Sometimes we need to confess those things to each other. Sometimes we need help. But it's amazing when we do that, how it takes the power out of those things. Now they don't seem quite so big as they used to be. But we need to exercise our desire to be right with God by putting our faith and our trust in Jesus. We want to do the best we can. We want to do good things. We want to do well. But not because we're trying to bargain with God or coerce him into accepting us because that's, that's never going to work. That's just going to cause anxiety and stress and, and agony and misery. He's already given us everything we need and more than enough in the gospel of Jesus when we turn to him, trusting in the shed blood of Jesus. That's all we need. That's everything we need. The sacrifice of Jesus is sufficient for the forgiveness of sins when we trust him. Repent, trust Jesus, rest in him. Find peace and joy in Him. Find satisfaction in Him. I'm going to ask you to stand for a moment. We're going to have a word of prayer. And we'll give you a moment. I know there's there's things we all struggle with. We, we all do. And maybe there's something you need to repent of. You can do that quietly where you are. Something you might be struggling of. And maybe think about, you know, what desire is it that I have here that that I'm trying to exercise outside of where God intends me to exercise it. Maybe there's a right place I could take this. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you and praise you. We're thankful for Jesus. We just thank you for bringing us together today. And I pray that you would bring to light those things in our lives where we are struggling with sin, living outside of your intended context, those desires that we might be wrestling with, that you would help us exercise those in the way that you intend us to so that we could better live our lives for you, so that we would better serve you, we would experience peace, we would experience joy. And we're thankful for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for being part of service. And thank you for joining us online. And the cafe is open downstairs, and I hope you'll stick around and have a couple with us. And I look forward to seeing you.